If, like me, you have trouble falling asleep, I cannot recommend the new podcast, Calm History, enough. As mums, we're already short on sleep, aren't we? So we need to do all we can to get as much of it as humanly possible. Calm History helps you to learn more about history whilst reducing stress and helping you to fall asleep. It's narrated in a super calm voice, the perfect way to wind down after a busy day with a toddler or if you just need 20 minutes of peace during nap time. We've all been there. Just search for Calm History in your podcast player or use the link in the episode notes. I'm Francesca. I'm George's mum who was born in June 2020 and I'm also engagement director at Birthrights the human rights charity for pregnancy and childbirth. Hello and welcome to the podcast that shares the remarkable stories of the families who had babies during the middle of a global pandemic. I'm Philippa Giu and after my own baby was born in July 2020, I've been documenting the stories of the lockdown babies. Francesca, I'm so pleased to be talking to you because you've had your own lockdown baby and you're also working with the charity, as you say. So I'm really interested to hear about the work that you're doing with Birthrights. But first of all, little George was born in June 2020. My little girl was July 2020. So I think we probably had quite similar experiences. What was it like for you around that time? I think we were just kind of starting to open up a little bit. Restaurants and pubs were due to open, but still very much lots of restrictions in the hospitals. Yeah, so I gave birth on the 16th of June 2020. And in that time, masks had only just become compulsory in hospitals. So up until that point, I had been going in and out with without any masks. And it was at the discretion of myself and uh, my midwife, who I would be seeing in my antenatal appointments, how far apart we, we sat apart. Because obviously she had to examine me and things like that so um, the pandemic at that point as we know was still a very unknown entity although it had been in our lives for about you know three almost three months at that point so when I went in to have George and I'll get into all of that in a second restrictions were still very much a thing non-essential shops opened on that Monday and I remember vividly looking on Twitter and seeing queue around the block for Primark in some city somewhere in the UK and and then everybody coming in and out and it was so hot on that ward so so hot so everyone was with their masks and going oh my face oh my glasses oh it's steaming up it was that time where people were learning how to wear masks with glasses on it was an absolutely out of the question having any partner with you so to rewind a little bit from from it all I became pregnant with George in October 2019 and I was very lucky I fell pregnant very quickly but during my first trimester I had a complication which is a quite a minor common complication called subcryonic hematoma and I had a fairly large one that bled fairly often and I by the time I got to 12 weeks I had about five scans because I would have bleeds of varying degrees. And every time, of course, when I would have these bleeds, I would have to be scanned and then there'd have to be a follow-up scan. So from about six to 12 weeks, I fit all of those scans in. So it was pretty much one a week, it felt like. And for every single one of those scans, I had my partner with me, thankfully. It was a bit touch and go, very, I mean, it was my my first pregnancy. I didn't really know what, what to expect, what was going on. But the main thing was that I had my partner with, I had my husband with me the whole time. And we sailed into the second trimester, the wonderful golden trimester where you don't feel sick anymore. You don't have to eat on the hour every hour. You're not that tired. Everything seems to be okay. And we had the 20 week scan. I was so pleased not to have any scans between 12 and 20 weeks after that anxiety inducing first trimester got to 20 week scan, everything was absolutely fine, lovely. And that was at the beginning of February. And again, we didn't, COVID was kind of a bit of a, the coronavirus, as it was called back then, was somewhere in the background. But it was something that was happening on the other side of the world. And you don't really take much notice of it. You're just in your own world. I was very, very busy at work. So um, I worked in music. So we'll come on to how I ended up in the birth sector after that. (laughs) 
And about five weeks later, we were in lockdown, put it that way. Like we, it was five weeks later, we are looking at the beginning of March. I'm in the office. Coronavirus suddenly was becoming something called COVID-19. And suddenly it was becoming a bit of a nightmare, wasn't it? It really was, wasn't it? It was just where where has this come from? It was on the other side of the world. Now it's it now it's in our in our living room and it's in our on our TVs. It really did feel like that, didn't it? It's on the other side of the world. Oh, and now by the way, you can only leave the house for one hour a day. It just felt suddenly that it it came. Absolutely. And didn't really know what to think. I mean, like I said, I was in a very busy job. So I I one minute I'm giving and I was I I did a lot of public speaking in 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 that in that job. So one minute I'm at the South Bank Centre giving a speech on music education, and the same day uh, I um after I was I, I had to do something else with my boss. She I remember we were giving an interview to somebody and she scrawled on a bit of paper to me, saying please get an Uber home because of. COVID because we were feeling a bit iffy I mean she very half-heartedly was saying well they're not really sure how it affects pregnant women I think the evidence says so far it doesn't disproportionately affect people and people were at the different stages of with how serious they were taking the pandemic anyway and that evening so in the morning I'm at the South Bank Centre and in the evening I'm getting texts saying let me know if you need anything because but because Boris Johnson had then said that pregnant women had to stay indoors and then that was it I remember that day so, so clearly as well. I don't think I'll ever forget it, actually. Same situation was at work. We were all watching it on our little TV screens that we had in our desks. And that was it. I got put in a taxi, sent home, never to return, basically. Absolutely. That uh, I, I basically, I had, uh, at that particular uh, last role of, of mine, was which was at the Incorporated Society of Musicians, I packed almost six years at that point, six years of belongings into bags. And like I was running from a from a, a ship, all my essentials just went into two, two bag for lives and a lot of lives. And I got the Uber from outside the door. And then that was that was me going on maternity leave, as it were, you know, because I was never to return to that office until, you know, June 2021, when I had my leaving party for my new job. <laughs> Yeah, sounds a bit like my story in that you kind of went back to your job, but you didn't really go back to your job because you were leaving to go to another job, which is also essentially what I did. And then so you'd gone home in the March, we'd all gone home in the March. How were the next few months for you? before George arrived? Again, very, very busy at work. Like I said, I worked with musicians, the whole of the West End shut down, orchestras no longer touring, it was a mess. So my time was very much taken up with that. And I didn't really leave the house. I went for a walk. Um, I tried to get out for an, for an hour every day because that was still important to me. I was very active before I fell pregnant and up until that point. And I didn't really leave I didn't go into any shops between March and two weeks after I gave birth. I only went in the car to go to to the midwife every every couple of weeks or so. And I went in I was in the third trimester and things started to go a little awry with my pregnancy. As I mentioned, I had a subchronic hematoma at the beginning, but there it had been said that it had gone, everything had resolved. But unbeknownst to me, George was actually suffering from something called fetal uh, growth restriction, where the placenta is too small. It impacts the, the baby's growth. I then started having to go to the hospital a little bit more often, including an overnight stay, because his movements, and I have to say that as well um, to anybody who's who's possibly pregnant and listening to this, that keeping in tune with your baby's movements, whether they reduce or whether they speed up any change at all, really important to go and get that checked out triage do not mind whether you go once or a hundred times it's always best to go and get that checked out and I'm really glad that I did and I'll get on to to that very late later on but I'd had a text from my midwife saying that my partner was no longer my husband was no longer able to come with me I was starting to have pregnancy complications and I was having to keep going in for growth scans an overnight stay for um you know threatened preterm labor at one point it was just getting a bit much and my anxiety was growing. So we already had this threat of the pandemic. Nobody knew what was going on. Of course, as a, and I'm sure it was the same for you, Philippa, you're looking and looking and looking at the RCOG guidance around COVID and pregnancy, uh, you know, scouring the news for that poor pregnant nurse who passed away. That impacted me so profoundly. I was so worried after that. And of course, 
missing my family, which was one of the most, I mean, I don't want to get upset, but it was one of the most precious times. I, you know, for my family, it was the first grandchild and I really wanted my mum. When, when I'm really upset, you know, I really want, really want my mum, ultimately. And um, I used to, I'd be on the phone to my dad going, you know, why is this happening? I really want to see you. And it was just, it was really sad. And um, I don't actually have any pictures really with me that pregnant with my parents or with my twin sister, with my younger sister, with my grandparents, nothing. It's almost like it didn't happen. Yes. All you've got is maybe like a mirror selfie because that was all you did, right? We didn't leave the house. No, that is just so true, isn't it? And what you say about scouring the news and the internet trying to find out what the guidance was what they were saying were pregnant people be there was nothing there was very little information out there luckily my 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 job kept me busy right right up until the moment that i went on maternity leave at and uh, again i went i went on i used up some leave you know that kind of thing where you use up a bit of leave we go on maternity leave so i went on leave at about 35 weeks or so and it was just as well because i just had a overnight stay for threat and preterm labor after that I was I had to keep going for growth scans they basically kept the, the, my, my my brilliant midwife kept saying I'm a bit worried about baby's growth bump hasn't really moved at all in a week two weeks you know hasn't grown again hmm. you know she she knew in her intuition something wasn't right but when I would go for a scan on my own well I'd have a, I'd have a list from my brilliant midwife saying please get them to check this and this and this the person doing the scan wouldn't really would say oh it's not possible to check placental function still don't know to this day whether it is or isn't whether you have to do something special I don't know but they I don't know whether the the appropriate checks were done because what happened after my second growth scan so I had two in in total was that George's movements after a period of being extremely increased then basically went reduced to almost nothing at all and you know you try the tricks that you because you know your baby you know you know the patterns you are even even at this point you are solely responsible for for your baby and you feel it so innately that that's that's your child so I went to triage and said my baby is not moving and they said to me and I and although at my trust there are so many brilliant people there the person I happened to be dealing with that day basically said to me I was an anxious first time mum and I I I am lucky that I'm able to advocate for myself because I really I said I'm sorry that you you know yes the heartbeat might be fine but the movement is not and I kept repeating it until they said okay well we'll bring you back but it's not our concerns it's yours we're going to do it when do you want to come in I said well I'll come in first thing tomorrow morning so we're now looking at the 15th of June where our story began. Masks on the face. I went in for, my husband dropped me off at the doors. I went in for my monitoring. And just after a good hour or more, they said, yeah, no, you're right. There's something wrong here because he, and I knew he was a he. Sorry, mum and dad. We, I did know it was a boy, but they weren't sure at the scan. So anyway, he, George was not, he wasn't well. He wasn't he wasn't meeting the criteria on the CTG. When they told you that piece of news and you were on your own, what were you thinking in that moment? I was thinking about all of the preparation that I had done and that it would include my antenatal classes, practitioner I will not mention, who told me that I all the signs of labor, all the you know, you you have these images of how things will go and before I was pregnant, my health has always been good. I've always been fit, active. There's nothing, there was nothing to suggest at all at any point that my pregnancy would be an issue. But I'd been, I just knew that something, it was going to end like this somehow. But I was terrified, quite honestly. I tried to keep it together when I was calling. I had, first of all, I had to call my husband and say, listen, something isn't right, actually. They're now going to keep me in. The man's out in the car park waiting to take me home. We've got nothing in the boot. In hindsight, perhaps a little bit silly as I was almost 38 weeks pregnant then. I'm having to call him and tell him that the lovely labour that we were expecting to have at home, the only guarantee that he could be with me, let's be honest, because there was also that at play, wasn't there? Once you're in established labour, your partner can be with you. Well, it wasn't going to end like that. I was now going to be induced in hospital 
which is a long, arduous process as far as as far as anybody's ever said to us. And um, and our baby is sick. So that was the first step where I felt some profound failure. Oh, right. We are going to end it like this, are we? The conversation essentially went, your baby's not very well. I think we are going to have to go ahead with induction. And all I heard and all anybody would hear at that point is your baby is unwell. You don't really think I didn't know actually what induction properly entailed because my antenatal education didn't really discuss any of that properly. So when um, the conversation between, okay, we're going to we think we should induce you to me actually having a prepared pessary put in was about 20 20 minutes or so I I wouldn't entire I wouldn't call that entirely informed consent because I wasn't not that I'm saying that, that what, what happened was unlawful but it certainly it was the due care of saying of making sure that information had properly gone in that we're going to induce you now and this is what's going to happen and so I was induced that way the propest was put in and we're going to leave you now for 24 hours and you're just going to wait for labor to begin and that's what I did and I was in this room on my own which was you know a blessing and a, and a curse because blessing because in case you know dignity etc were you being induced not always the most dignified experience I guess um, and a curse because I was on my own I had myself and my phone and eventually my charger which I had to waddle down to out into the car park to go and get my belongings because of course my husband wasn't allowed in the building you know and this would but this would have been happening to 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 women all over all over the land so it's not just independent individual to my to my trust I have to say that but looking in hindsight I had a baby that was in distress and I'm waddling downstairs with a with a with a pessary in (laughs) to go and get my things because somebody that you live with and slept in the same bed as last night is not allowed into the hospital (laughs) that's right and so my whole support system is on a phone It, it was just surreal quite honestly and then we got to about 12 hours into the induction. So I'm ele- I was induced at 11 in the morning. And so I got to 11 at night and I was put back on the CTG as is custom- customary after, you know, 12 hours later to be put back on the machine. And things were pretty dire, actually, for George. It was really, I was monitored for about three, three and a half hours because his heart rate was all over the shop. The contractions had started or at least tightenings had started then pain had started anyway my body hadn't reacted very well to the to the prepare so I'd had a had a bit of a reaction where I was having a bit of hyperstimulation so things were I was having contractions quite quickly but they weren't progressing anything I was sore I was swollen the whole I was already also getting very tired because we it was starting to go in sort of the dead of the night and nobody talked to me about what was going on I would hear the bleeping and the and the you know what your baby's heartbeat sounds like on the machine and then you, you see it you see that that colored number I think I can't remember what color the heart rate is but I would be seeing that half I'd be hearing it half slow very slow and then speeding up again as the tightening goes away and then it would happen again and again and again and again for 3 hours and all I had was my phone to say to my husband that things aren't going that great I don't really know what's going on I had an obstetrician and um, a senior midwife with me and they would just be having conversations above my head I have to say the poor obstetrician I almost kicked her out the window she tried to try to examine me to see if anything had been going on but I was just not I've never screamed like that ever I am something was really visceral in me I I I I like to think that I can cope with quite a lot, but we're talking two, three in the morning at this point. I was, my body was obviously not liking this prepare. George was obviously in some kind of distress himself. I, I was mentally traumatized by the fact that I could hear him really struggling and there was nothing I could do to get to him. And, and just the whole, the whole setup was, was horrendous. This very well-meaning obstetrician tried to give me uh, a vaginal examination and I just wasn't having any of it but it was so animalistic so visceral I just wasn't I just did not want her near me at all poor woman almost went out the window but we I think we determined that nothing was happening <laughs> <laughs> pretty quick but I, I ended up having to go for an emergency c-section which um I was able to have my husband for which was great so did it get to a point where they said to you, he can come in now, ring him, he can come in? 
Yeah, because something really went a bit wrong on the CTG where it went, um, I don't know what they say. I'll have to remember what the word is for you, but they it basically it just it went really bad. And then they went they came in with the consent papers and said, Listen, I think we're gonna have to move to emergency C section now because I don't think you're going you or 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 the baby will tolerate another twenty four hours of pessary. This is a, like a we need to move. They said, Right, you can call your husband now. He will meet us downstairs. And I remember in this, in the midst of all of this, trying to find a face mask to to go downstairs. So we just put an eye mask around my face instead because we just didn't have anything. And I, I, you know, I have to hand it to the midwives. They all kind of went, "All right, bye, good luck," you know, as I was on my way down to theatre. The C section itself was actually really brilliant in the sense that everybody was really communicative, really calm really happy and really smiley because a cesarean birth I don't know why people say it's the easy way out because it's not you are being operated on in a major way awake and (laughs) you're numb from the chest down and that's also a really frightening feeling but George was born very quickly within about five less than 10 minutes he was out and in in my arms briefly he was fine at first, but then it became quite apparent that he hadn't been that. He came out, he was tiny for a start. He was so skinny. You know, these babies come out and they're so plump and they're so lovely, you know, rolls, some of them and things like that. But my 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 um, my darling had was skinny, like a little baby bird. And when I'm like, hmm, because we weren't expecting that. And they weighed him and he was under six pounds or about five and a half pounds. And for a, you know, 38 plus three or four, that's quite a low birth weight. He wasn't, he was between zero and one on, on the, um, uh, centile, on the centile chart. And, and then he, then he, he wouldn't pink up basically. He was crying. He was, he was breathing. He it was fine, but then he just wasn't really, his color was still pretty bad. So they ended up having to take him to NNU because his lactate kept rising and rising and rising, which indicates some kind of infection, possibly sepsis. He's got to go. So he just was whisked off. And that was the end of that. And my husband ran off after him. And while they were all gone, I was admitted to postnatal back into a room on my own. So I'd gone from being in a room on my own into surgery, back into a room on my own. And for for whatever reason, COVID has, has been blamed that the consultants didn't come and see me to tell me what had happened. It was all very badly communicated through my husband. And I requested my birth notes afterwards. And that and that was it was documented as we've spoken to the family. That was George's birth. It was something I always say it was it feels weird to me sometimes to say that I gave birth to him because although my cesarean was amazing and I'd like to wrap it up in a bubble, I think there's there's I just felt very profoundly like I'd failed, basically. I had re- I'd carried this baby for 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 um, nine months, and this I had robbed myself, George, and my husband Ben of of that experience that you see in all of the the brochures, the websites, the the mummy blogs, the, the the social media that, and we we'd had friends go in around us who had got to set six centimeters at home, and and then were able to go walk straight into labour wards have their baby overnight, not safe for the dad to, to drive home. So they all go home together in the morning, you know, that kind of thing. But I actually ended up being in hospital for four days and we had to leave George there because he couldn't come home with me. And I, to say that my mental health took a nosedive would be an understatement. I would say a lot, uh, some, uh, some of it was triggered by sleep deprivation, but also the, the feelings of abandonment I was, you know, meant to know what I was doing, but my baby was down in neonatal. I'm upstairs with, with a with a C-section wound, which is painful, and I was just dragging myself up out of bed when I shouldn't probably have been to go down to neonatal and this, and then the the feeding support was was very limited because of George being so small being so weak he couldn't feed from me so I would be expressing but nobody could help me or showed me how to express colostrum so I'm in my room up in postnatal using YouTube and a syringe and 
is widely known that you need to have your baby with you to get those hormones going, to get the milk being produced. I was just, I was so traumatized by the birth happening in that way, by George being so sick, by the feelings of failure by me, the, the fact that I didn't have any support. I didn't know what I was meant to be doing. No one really knew or no one really told me what I would be doing. I think because I was able to get up and have a shower clinically, I was at the bottom of the list. So people didn't come into my room. They gave me a room, thankfully, because I didn't have to look at the other babies. It was very kind of them to do that. But because I was in a room, I was kind of forgotten about. And it was despair and the painkillers I was on. I don't think that really helped with my sleep either. I couldn't, I didn't, I was very, it was just an awful time. And that continued even after dis- discharge. I mean, you're discharging out of hospital. When I, when we took George home, I noticed that I was, I was terrified of everything. So you're bringing home a sick newborn after a traumatic delivery like that into an environment where you can't really have anybody around to help you. Nobody really wants to come around and help you because they're frightened of giving something to you, giving something to the baby. You know, you fright, and also you're just frightened of the virus itself. We still didn't know at that point who had it and who didn't. It was just a lottery, wasn't it? Um, with no testing, no vaccines, no nothing. And um, I just nosedived. You know, I did receive a formal diagnosis of PTSD, which thankfully I've managed to work through. Um, but I did. I ended up taking longer maternity leave than I planned. I wanted to take nine months. So I ended up taking the full year. But when I started to get better, I because I started speaking to the hospital about, okay, so where is my placenta? You've sent it off. Where is it? You need to tell me where that is. Why did this go wrong? When I started getting better and starting coming back to myself, I started thinking, wow, this was actually a close shave because I, I I go back to the beginning where I said he's not moving. They said I was anxious. Now, if I had just accepted that, then I would have had a stillbirth. That has been said to me now that we moved at the right time. He was giving up. The centre was too small to support him anymore. And um, we had, you know, uh, pathology done on the placenta. And yes, it was too small. And there was a, there was a, a hemorrhage in it as well. So it was all a bit close call so that's why I go back again to say that that movement point is so important but I started thinking okay that was a close call now how can we make sure that doesn't happen to anybody else because this cannot be an uncommon occurrence with the movement situation or, or things like this this must happen to thousands of people every day how many close calls are there so I got involved with the local maternity voices partnership of the trust and one thing led to another and I, I became co-chair. So I then started working with the trust itself on aspects of my care um, because I had seen so much of the maternity services in such a small space of time, antenatal, postnatal, of course, labor wolf, theater, C-sections, neonatal, the lot. Yeah, you'd done it all, truly. And had that experience of restrictions and what, and firsthand what the impact of that is. And I also wanted to better understand the system because I had the strong sense that it wasn't just the pandemic that made things that way. That's what I was going to say to you. How much? Obviously, it's 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 really difficult to listen to your story because it's so similar to my own. We share a lot of a lot of similarities. It's almost like it's me telling it in a way. And that's what I was going to say to you. How much of it do you feel? was because of the pandemic or how much would it have been like that anyway? So for me, at least, I very much do feel that the pandemic played a a big part in how things went wrong, basically, because I felt that I was on my own. I had started to panic and then I asked for an epidural and then I had this huge, they call it a cascade of interventions, I think, where it's one thing after another, and then you have forceps, and then all these different things happen. And I feel that if I'd have just had my husband with me, it maybe just wouldn't have gone down that path. So I'm really interested to hear what you think about that. I mean, that particular point, having somebody with you to advocate for yourself, uh, you know, it can be really difficult. You know, like I said, the conversations going on above your head. How at that point do you interject when this stuff is being done to you you don't really know and it's not like any it's not that anybody's to to blame but as we've seen in the recent Ockerden review that a lot of things is a lot of um failings on Shrewsbury part anyway 
is to do with listening to women when they're when they're when they're saying I don't feel this is right I don't like this you know or I would like this I don't want this I think what what happened with with you and I was that we didn't have that second person there to say hang on a minute what does that mean because when you're in that moment you just go you just go with it and you think about it later and especially especially when you're hearing the baby's in trouble you just you just go along with it you don't stop and ask and that is extremely detrimental. But in terms of the maternity services, the system in general, I mean, it was creaking before the pandemic. The staffing issue has been going on for years, chronic underfunding, chronic understaffing. Um, and unfortunately, it's just been made much, much worse with the pandemic. So many midwives leaving the profession because of the the conditions which they are working in. And I know in in my role uh, both with the the MVP and and at birthrights, you know, I hear from midwives and other healthcare professionals who are who are completely traumatized by what they've experienced, not only with looking after pregnant COVID patients, but also just not being able to give the care that they want to give because of the staffing crisis. And like I said, it's not just about restrictions; it's also about the impact of not listening. So yeah, it's it's a really tricky one. But what what attracted me to, to birthrights? I so I'd had this seismic experience, and I had spent my entire life in music. So I was a musician when I was younger, and I went to music college, and then I was in the music industry. But this seismic event, which of which you know, obviously birth is is one of those. You, but suddenly I I thought I've got, I've I just had this urge. I need to do something about this this advocacy is always something that I've worked in a campaigning comms that kind of thing but I really wanted to get involved with making sure that women and and birthing people would would actually know their rights and able to advocate for themselves not just uh, like people you know my age or my my demographic we're talking I'm talking about young young mothers I'm talking about older mothers I'm talking about black and brown women from um, different socioeconomic backgrounds everybody this advocacy point and understanding what your basic birth rights are and when you can say yes and when you can say no and what true informed consent means um because as i said i don't know whether i really got it obviously i said yes to having an induction but that was because i said my i heard my baby's sick so i've got to i've got to move on this but um i didn't know anything about the induction process so one would question did i give true informed consent so um I'd been involved with Maternity Voices Partnership for a little while. I then was involved in the first stage of the Ockerdam review because Service User Voice was invited to participate in the London review, which is where I'm based. So I was involved in that during my maternity leave where we were racing, you know, uh, the hospitals. And I really was starting to get get into the, into the, the maternity space, the birth world, for, for want of a better phrase. And um, the and birthrights had come onto my radar because I had been accessing their fact sheets about various things, including the right to see your records, because I, I re- requested my my birth notes and George's as well, just to, just to piece together what had gone on. And um, they had been doing a lot of campaigning from the beginning of the pandemic, writing to trusts, advising I can give you some stats in a second <laughs> but advising thousands of women on on and birthing people on their on the restrictions and making big changes with regards to letting big changes to guidance around letting partners in to for your scans and and things like that so a job came up there engagement director and it happened to be very, very similar to the job that I'd been doing already. And I applied for the job and the rest is history. I, I started there in, in, on the 15th of June 2021, which is a year after I was induced. So your experience has changed you as a person so much so that you've actually changed the whole course of your career and your life in a way. It's been that profound yeah i i was fully intending to go back to music the music industry was you know very well established there and i enjoyed my job there as well and and um but but this was such a 
I mean, birth is profound anyway, but this was such a seismic life event. There was just no, it would have been like going back to music at that point felt like putting a square peg round hole because I was a completely different person and I had a different, I it changed how I viewed everything. Birthrights, the birthrights job came up and it just felt, I just felt it was the right thing to do. And luckily they, they thought the same. I thought so too. And when you, when you were talking about some of the work that they were doing, kind of a, a, uh, advising what the rules and, and the regulations should be, how much of an impact did that have? Because obviously there was a lot of campaigning when, you know, women were alone and birthing alone and not having their birth partners for scans and things. How much of a difference did did the campaigning from your organisation, but also others, have? So you probably saw on... Twitter mainly the the hashtag but not maternity so birthrights was key in in that alliance so that's an alliance with other organizations such as aims and um, pregnant and screwed and you know these big birth organizations who came together to raise awareness of the of the impacts that the covid restrictions were having um, i mean in terms of what was going on with birthrights um so to give you a little bit of a background of what birthrights actually does so the the charity champions respectful care during pregnancy and childbirth by protecting human rights so that's that's anything from providing advice and information on legal rights right through to training healthcare professionals including doctors and midwives and within all of that we also influence policy and campaign to change systems maternity policy and we do that by all of that by promoting human rights and human rights in the maternity context it sets human rights law sets out the way we can expect to be treated by public bodies including the NHS and that means that public bodies must respect human rights when making decisions and it also means that the caregivers within them must respect human rights as they go about their work so I think the concern that birthrights had is that the restrictions violated many of the articles that that are appropriate for maternity care so uh, specifically article three the right to not be subjected to in inhuman or degrading treatment that's access to pain relief water you know these things you hear that all the time we do particularly for our advice line that you know my partner wasn't there I wasn't able to get a drink for ages we also were quite concerned that it was violating Article 8, which is the, 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 the right to a private and family life. So that's, you know, and what, what really affected that was the suspension of maternity services. So uh, including, you know, home birth, midwife-led birth centres, you know, restricted access to maternal request cesareans. You know, in some cases, people were also having to give birth completely alone. When I say completely alone, of course, there were healthcare professionals there, but, you know, their partner wasn't. And I don't think we've quite seen yet the impact on these very on these human rights laws fully realised. I mean, a lot of a lot of these violations took away choice. And when you take away choice, that causes lasting trauma. Did nobody think that the the impacts of forcing people having a baby to be on their own would be profound and long lasting? Or did they just think that oh, women just always get on with it, they'll they'll be all right. Because that's what it feels like to me. Yeah, and I mean, that, that that's what it felt like definitely for me as well. Um, unfortunately, I think you and I were in that first cohort of um, women who, who were pregnant when the pandemic hit and it was so unknown. And no, the general message, I think, was to keep COVID out at, at all costs, keep it out. And I think... There were a lot of a lot of trusts were at the mercy of infection control, and infection control doesn't think about mental impact, doesn't or psychological damage. It doesn't think about all it thinks about is keeping COVID out. And I mean, from from birthrights point of view now, particularly, we would say that if restriction, I mean, there are variants coming out all the time for of COVID, and there's always a risk. You know, lockdown is never off completely off the table, so we could be going. I really hope not, but there could be a situation where we're going backwards and restrictions could be being put in place. And we would really stress that all relevant factors, okay, yeah, including infection control, are considered. So that would be psychological harm that could be caused to someone who's giving birth if she, you know, she can't have her partner with with her. If you weigh up the benefits of any potential restrictions against the harm they cause you know, you would get a very, very different answer to just keeping 
COVID out. There was some research commissioned last year by Birthrights that that demonstrated the indescribable amount of financial costs that this post-traumatic stress disorder and, and perinatal mental health has caused society. And that also needs to be part of the picture as well. Do you think that our human rights were violated? If we're to look at the what the Human Rights Act represents and the articles that are relevant to maternity care, then yes, they were. Because our right to a private and family life was violated because we weren't allowed to have a partner with us. In my case, there was a point where I was in one place, my husband was in another place, and and George was in another place. You know, blanket policies and visiting restrictions, that's rarely lawful as well. And then for, for other people, it was you know, restricted access to pain relief and basic care, such as water or being left alone on postnatal wards. I mean, in my case, I unfortunately was left in, you know, rather it was rather undignified, but I had had bled quite a lot and I was just left in the sheets. No one actually noticed. I mean, I didn't notice. I was, I was still numb from the waist down and my, and my, um, and you know, my catheter bag was full. That's, that's not dignified. The work that charities such as Birthrights and and other charities in the space and organisations in this space are doing is is so, so important. And thank you for doing that work and for being the voice of all of us who have lived this hell for the last two years. And I know that lots of work is being done behind the scenes, lots of research. And, you know, I'm sure that that research will continue for many, many years. But will we ever get answers from our government our prime minister our nhs about why this happened why this was allowed to happen and what lessons might be learnt from it i mean i think podcasts such as these and and other advocacy work really demonstrating the impact that this has happened this has had on parents such as you you and i is paving the way in you know into getting answers. I I, sus- I suspect I don't think we'll we'll ever have the full picture because there is that element of what I said uh, just now, which is that we were in that first cohort and nobody knew what was going on and anything went in terms of restrictions and it's not necessarily anybody's fault. I think. A lot of uh, heads and directors to midwiferies were having to make very difficult calls. And, and as I said, there were plenty of healthcare professionals who have been left completely bereft by not being able to give the care that they wanted to give. And that's obviously in relation to also the staffing crisis that's going on. I think for you and I, we will we will be a part of history of when that was allowed to happen. All we can do is drive change to make sure that that doesn't happen again, because it can't happen again. What lessons do we need to take from this going forward? We need to look at the whole picture before any kinds of restrictions are being put back in again. This is a massive, this has been a massive learning curve for an emergency situation. I would also encourage trusts to be more transparent about their decision making. So there were several FOI requests done by ourselves, by other organisations, you know, asking trusts to demonstrate the risk assessment that they had made before putting restrictions in place. And to date, we hadn't received any notification that any of this had actually happened, any risk assessment had been done. So that that would be a learning to really weigh up the impact, not just on not just with regards to infection control, but the psychological harm that that the restrictions have done for women birthing people and their families. What would you say to anybody listening to this who's had a hard time, maybe hasn't sought the help that they might need or that they feel ready now? You know, it might be two years later, a year later, however long it might be, but they might feel ready now to take the next step and perhaps ask for some help. I I would I would absolutely advocate speaking to somebody about your experience. You can in terms of understanding what happened in the birth itself, if that if that has been something that's been weighing on your mind, I would encourage you to get in touch with your trust and ask for a birth reflections. It's becoming quite a popular service where you're able to retrospectively go through your the sequence of events in your birth notes and to ask those questions. And that's something I found really helpful in my recovery to go back because I'm, I'm one of these people, I'm quite details orientated. I need to know why that happened. In some respects, it's almost 
safeguarding future Francesca if she wanted to have any more children, you know, to really know understand what went wrong and to have that opportunity to, to, to give feedback whilst you're there. I also want people to acknowledge what happened wasn't usual. It was quite extraordinary. And particularly if it was your first birth, George is my only child, what happened wasn't normal. It wasn't what we expected. It wasn't what you expected. And it's okay to feel feel like this. It's, you should acknowledge that, okay, that experience wasn't what I expected for whatever reason. And a lot of it is probably to do with the pandemic. And you know what? That Because we gave birth in extraordinary circumstances and that needs to be acknowledged. I would also go and see your GP and see if you can get a referral to perinatal mental health services should should that be an offering in your area or to get some talking therapies if needed it's so true what you say about kind of realizing that this wasn't normal and this wasn't what was supposed to happen to you I think that was one of the realizations for me I think in the beginning when I when I was really upset about it all actually and really angry about it all I kept thinking, oh, I'm just being really dramatic. I'm just being so dramatic. Oh, everyone gives birth. It's fine. Just get over it. Get over it, Philippa. Just get over it. And nobody wanted to get over it more than me, but I just could not move forward from it. I was stuck on it. And I think it was when I realized that I'm not being dramatic. I'm not being over the top. It was horrific. And that was when I was able to realize that this wasn't a normal situation and it's so important that you've said that because so many of the people that I've spoken to on the podcast and off the podcast in real life mum friends whatever they don't want second babies because they're so scared to have to go through that again because they think that's and, and actually that's true for me as well you know I don't know if we'll have another baby which is so sad because I always wanted more children but they feel that they can't and actually you forget that it wasn't normal. We we became pregnant when none of this was happening. You know, of course you imagine what you it will be like when you when you're in the third trimester near the end or and you work out in your head what what month it'll be and it's like oh it'll be really hot then and but never never did I did I think that something like this would happen where I basically would not go in a shop between March and July which is a long stretch of time. I didn't have a clue what was going on when I went I went back into the Tesco Metro, two weeks after giving birth, which probably wasn't the best idea because a C-section, you need to rest a bit more. And I didn't have a clue what was going on, the one-way systems, and nobody was dodging me anymore because I was no longer pregnant. So I was back to being a normal person, meant to now slot into this. I had been so isolated. And you're right, it does make you, makes you question whether you want to expand your family in the future. I mean, why wouldn't it? make you question question it I mean I think that's also a very normal reaction as well because unfortunately when you've had a traumatic experience like that you do associate one with the other it's it is sad because I I'm a twin and my my husband is a twin as well so we've we've come from and we've both got another sibling too so so we've both come from families of five and there's that unit and so we always saw more than one child in our future because that was our default setting we came as a pair like with with our with our respective siblings so to now think just sort of oh maybe not for a second child which is something that we we've always wanted to to we've always wanted more than one it's really sad and i do feel that i i would need a lot of convincing <laughs> to to go there and then it's when people say to you oh when you're having another and i'm thinking please don't ask me that I'm barely over know. first. Yeah, yeah, maybe never. It's when they offer you contraception when you're leaving the hospital and you're like, is this a sick joke? I know. There's just never, there's just honestly, there's one sort of funny story. There was an obstetrician came to see me and he, you know, told me about my iron levels and this and that and the other. And because I was a little bit anemic after after the um, C-section. And then he, yeah, he offered me contraceptive services. And I looked at him like, what? Do you know where a C-section happens? Like, I <laughs> I looked at him as if he had grown another head and he, I think he was a bit sheepish. I'll give him that. It's never a good time to ask that question. It's not a good time. I know they've got to, but I'll just like, I'll never forget that. I was just like, is this a joke? Obviously, we know two years on from the first lockdown that rates of PTSD, postnatal depression and anxiety have risen. Do we know, or it's too soon to say, but can can we predict what some of the even longer term 
impacts might be in, I don't know, five to 10 years? You never forget your birth experience. So my grandmother's can recall their their birth experiences like they were yesterday and that you know their children are in their 50s I would like to think that trauma would lessen over time but it's hard to say to, to be honest what things will go what, what it will be like in that in that sense on the mental health side of things what that would look like in five to ten years time I know speaking for for me that being involved in in MVP work and and starting to work for birth rights and working with people who who have had adverse birth outcomes or you know would like to advocate for themselves or would like to affect change has been really brilliant for helping me understand the system in which I've given birth and to feel that I'm doing something really useful with my traumatic experience because it would have been so so easy to have given in to the PTSD I have never felt so unwell as I did in the first eight weeks after George was born it was really frightening and and scary and my wish would be for nobody to feel like that and that's really been the driving force behind my entire career change (laughs) Well, thank you so much for the work that you're doing in this space and that you continue to do. And it's just such a vital resource for us. Just thank you so, so much. Um, I'll pop a link in the show notes where people can read more about the work that you do. What I would like to say about Birthrights is that we offer a advice email service where people can write in and ask questions that they about their maternity care if it's not answered by our fact sheets which are also free and um, you're able to download those as well from our website if you need any information on how to advocate for yourself whether it's a maternal request c-section whether it's choosing where you want to give birth or whether it's you know the right to choose your midwife or doctor just go on our website and it will be there A huge thank you to Francesca for sharing her story and for telling us about the important work Birthrights does. I've linked their website below if you want to check it out. Now, I was originally planning to stop at 10 episodes, but I've decided to carry on and hear more from charities and researchers who are doing amazing work in this space. So I really hope you'll stick with me for all of that to come. Please do take a second to rate and review the podcast as it really helps new people find us. And if you want to get in touch with me, just search Lockdown Babies Podcast on Instagram. I'll be back next Wednesday with a brand new episode. Bye bye for now.